invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 12 through to 21. Romans 5, verse 12, and before we read, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your words, thank you for the opportunity to think about it together, and again, we pray that by your Spirit you come and help us uh, to, to really understand it and to see the the contours, if you like, of your gospel and uh, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. So Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigns from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of God the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought uh, condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass death reigned, through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we've been looking at uh, Romans chapter 5 this month, um, and we've seen... And it's continuing our series that we've been doing for some time uh, in the book of Romans in, on the afternoon. And we've seen, I hope, that it's a, it's a great letter. Uh, it kind of goes without saying. You, know, you need to know, know Romans uh, if you're a Christian. And uh, if you want to, I remember saying once that uh, if, you, if you want to consider yourself an evangelical Christian, an evangelical church, uh, then you need to get your head around Romans. And uh, so that's one reason why we're... Uh, we're working our way through it, um, actually for the second time as, as a church. And of course, this is a, this is a letter that has been instrumental in the conversion of many people, um, many Christians. For example, Martin Luther, uh, you remember the great 16th century reformer. He was born in the 15th century, but most of his adult life was in the 16th century. And uh, Luther, for years, was a, a Bible teacher... And uh, he taught others without knowing the content of the gospel. He didn't understand the gospel. 
But he knew the moral content of the Bible, and so he taught that. He, and he taught the Psalms, and uh, uh, he taught um, uh, what he thought was uh, the teaching of those Psalms. And he believed that, of course, having studied the Scripture and the Old Testament Scriptures, that, of course, righteousness is necessary uh, to be in relationship with God, to be uh, right with God. And, but the problem for Luther, of course, was that he was never able to achieve righteousness. He could never be sinless. He always had sin in his life. You know, the story goes that he, uh, he once spent six hours confessing his sins to his, his mentor, who was getting a bit fed up with all the sins that kept tumbling out in the confessional box. And, uh, you know, as soon as he went out, he, he remembered some more sins that he needed to confess. And he had to go back and he had to be dissuaded by, uh, by his mentor. So he was never able to achieve a sense of uh, peace because he knew that he didn't have righteousness. But it was only when he started teaching Galatians and teaching uh, Romans and looking at the original languages in, in Greek rather than the Latin that everybody was using, he began to understand something. You see, he came across that famous statement in Romans 3 verse 21, which says, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed. <laughs> and suddenly he's saying, he's thinking, well, I'm trying to work up my righteousness as best I can, be a moral person and a good person, and suddenly discovers, well, the whole gospel message is that God has a righteousness that he provides for his people. And that righteousness is possible because of Jesus Christ. He comes as the righteous man, and he has come to make sacrifice for sins on behalf of others, so that by faith in him, wonderfully, we can be counted as righteous in God's sight. It's the most gloriously simple gospel message. That you, it's impossible for you and I to, to reach a level of moral perfection. We can't do it. But Jesus did it. And if we're in Jesus, then we get everything that he is. One for us. That's a wonderful thing about the gospel. And, uh, and so at that point, you know, in Luther's life, a, gr- a great burden was lifted off his shoulders. Suddenly he was free. His life was transformed. And you know, countless numbers of people have experienced this uh, ever since. They have discover- discovered the wonderful free grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul really has been unfolding for us uh, in the, these chapters. He's been explaining the deep problems of mankind in chapters 1 and 2 uh, with that, you, you remember that devastating conclusion in, in 3.10. He says, no one is righteous, no not one. And then in verse 23 he says, all have sinned, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." But the glorious transition happens in 321, but now a righteousness from God is revealed, uh, has been manifested apart from the law. 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so he's, he's not saying, well, it's, it's all about, you know, you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is a way to get this righteousness. And so he, in chapter 4, he uh, begins to speak about this righteousness by faith. And he, he shows that uh, that righteousness by faith was all through the Old Testament as well. Uh, that Abraham had, was righteous by faith. And so the Old Testament way of salvation is always the same as the New Testament way of salvation. It's always by faith. By faith in Christ. And it's, uh, for us, it's faith in Christ looking backwards and seeing what Christ has done. For those in the Old Testament, it was faith in Christ looking forwards and taking, taking the promises and the prophecies and the types and the shadows and the imagery and everything and all the things that point forward to Jesus Christ. And they would have faith in Jesus Christ, the, the, the servant that would come. Uh, David speaks of the servant. Uh, Isaiah speaks of the servant. They all speak of the servant who's going to come, the Messiah. And so we have this uh, wonderful exposition of the gospel and how it's, in, in Paul, and, and how it's perfectly suited to deal with the sin of mankind. Um, in this section, though, so uh, therefore, in, in when we come to verse 12 through to 21, uh, there is a sense in which Paul seems to go back to the beginning. It's, and, and it's quite a complicated passage. I, and I'm, in, in some ways, I'm only going to skirt the surface of it. Um, executive decision not to go too deep. Uh, sometimes I, I go too slow, and then I think, no, I should go a bit faster. Uh, and then when I go too fast, I think, no, it's too much. Uh, but, so we're going to go a bit faster today, and we're going to s- cover quite a lot of ground. Um, and what, what this passage gives us is a, is a broad view of history and, and a broad view of covenant history. How God makes covenant, how, how he works out his covenant with his people. He doesn't mention covenant in this passage, but it's, it's what's underpinning everything that he says. And so what we're going to look at is, is uh, three comparisons of two things. Three comparisons of two things. So three points, and I'm going to talk about two things that he's comparing in each point. And the first is two men, or two kings, that he's going to talk about. Then he's going to talk about two acts, which have consequences for the many. And then he's going to talk about the consequences themselves. What did those acts of these two men achieve for uh, the many that he's talking about? And it falls roughly into these three paragraphs that you have in the ESV. The two men are in 12 to 14. Uh, The two acts are in 15 to 17. And the two consequences are in 18 to 21. So let's think first of all about these two men, these two kings. And the first man, of course, is Adam. So he's mentioned, he is mentioned as one man uh, in, verse, uh, uh, in verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man. And then he is explicitly mentioned in verse 14, this transgression of Adam. So it's Adam he's talking about here, um, this one man. And then the second man is, at the end of verse 14, the one who was... Uh, a type of the one who was to come. So the second man is the one who was to come. 
Uh, and this one man in verse 15 is identified as that one man, Jesus Christ. So what we have is, is two men. So Adam on the one hand and Jesus Christ on the other. So let's just think for a moment about Adam. And I want you to notice something interesting about him. It was, it was through Adam, of course, that uh, sin came into the world, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, we know that Adam sinned. He ate the forbidden fruit along with Eve. Uh, of course, but Adam, Eve did it first, but Adam was responsible because he was the one that was told, given the command and the guardianship. And uh, we know already from what Paul has said in Romans chapter 1 to 3, that all have sinned, therefore. And, and we know that that means that all have committed a personal sin uh, and all are sinners because we sin. And that much, of course, we understand. But it's what's said next that is really interesting, possibly even confusing. For sin was in... This is verse 13. For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given. But sin was not counted where there is no law. <laughs> what a strange, strange thing to say. You might find that a bit confusing. It's, uh, uh, sin is not counted where there is no law. Uh, and here's, here's the problem. If, if, there's no, if there was sin, but that, that sin was not counted because there was no law, then why is there still death to every human being? If God doesn't seem to count it, why is there death to every human being? Why didn't people keep on living after they'd sinned? And the answer is this, that when Paul says that all sinned, he doesn't mean that every person commits a sin. That's true, but it's not from here. What he's saying here is that there is some sense in which when Adam sinned, Everybody sinned. Everybody was included in the sin. The whole extent of humanity in all generations thereafter. In other words, Adam, as, as it were, is a representative of the whole of humanity. And because Adam sinned, the whole of humanity is tainted by this sin. What Adam did affected everyone because in a sense he was the father of all humanity. Now, if you have trouble with that idea, actually we live with that kind of idea all the time. Even in our society. If you live in a representative democracy so that those in power make decisions that affect all of us. That's true, isn't it? We, we elect our representatives to make decisions for us. And it's no point putting up a placard and saying, not my prime minister, or, or not my president, or whatever. Uh, he is. You know, he or she is. And you can't get away from that. And what does, the decisions that they make affect all of us. So we live in representative times. Uh, parents act on behalf of their children, don't they? Uh, in a sense, parents, particularly fathers, represent their fathers. If, if a parent, you know, if your parents squander their money, then the children and maybe their generations thereafter are going to be affected 
by the way that you handle your money. If you make good decisions as a parent, your children may end up very wealthy. And this passes down through the generations. You see how it works. Uh, Your parents act for you and you could get blessings or curses depending on what your parents did. And sometimes we we speak as though uh, we are uh, are represented by others. Um, Let me give you a silly example. One of my colleagues in ministry, uh, Chris Statter, uh, used to work with us here for a while, for a few years, while he was training for the ministry. And not long after he first came here, I discovered he was a Manchester United fan. He was a real big Manchester United fan. And you could tell he was a true believer (laughs) in Manchester United. Um, because when he spoke about the team, he would always talk about how we played well, and we played, or we played badly, or we scored. Well, Chris wasn't anywhere near the game, but he still felt it was his goal, or his win, or his defeat, or whatever. And, in a sense, his team represented him as a supporter. And, uh, Though he wasn't actually playing, but he went through, but he experienced the the joys of the glory and the sufferings of disaster. And there's plenty of disaster going on right now in Manchester United. Uh, Those of you who don't know, don't know, and it doesn't matter. But for some people it matters. (laughs) But you see, we 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 think in terms of being represented by other people. And we share in some way in their, their life. Um, well, Adam represents the whole of the human race. And therefore, what he did in the garden affects all of us. In way, ways that we may not recognize and not understand, but it's, it's simply a, a biblical fact. What he did affects all of us. So that's Adam. And what Paul is doing here is he is telling us about Adam in order to prepare the way for talking about Jesus. And we see that there then in verse 14. Adam is a type or a pattern of the one who is to come. Um, A bit like Adam is a model, and then Jesus is the real thing. A pattern or a mold, and the real thing. And the pattern turns out to be useless. He failed. But Jesus is the real thing. And that's what we need. And it's quite clear that uh, Paul sees Jesus as an Adam figure. Um, It's kind of hinted at here in verse 14. But in 1 Corinthians 15.45, he says the first, he talks about the first man, Adam, becoming a life, uh, a living being. But the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That's Christ. I can't go into what, how he's the life-giving spirit here, but uh, that's, that's for an, another day. But, of course, the last Adam is Jesus Christ. So the first Adam and the last Adam. And, uh, and so Jesus comes now as a representative of a new human race. So Adam is the representative of the all of humanity and all its fallenness and sinfulness. But Jesus comes now to establish a new humanity. To be a new representative, a new king and lord. 
And he is able then to, instead of bringing death as Adam did to all of humanity, Jesus Christ is able to bring life to all those who are his, all those he came to save. So if you want to see history from a Christian perspective, then an essential part of it is to see mankind, all mankind, in relationship to these two men. If you're a human being, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. There's only two kinds of human being. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're either under the headship of Adam and lost in your sin, or you're under the headship of Christ and you've been given life. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those in Adam and those who are in Christ. So two men, two kings, uh, which just uh, uh, sets up the, the remaining two comparisons. So let me now consider the second thing, which is two significant acts. Two significant acts. And uh, <clears throat> when you have significant people in history, you've usually got an idea of what they've done to make them significant. People don't just become significant by virtue of their, uh, their being, normally. Um, so you have to think, well, what, what, have, what have they done with their lives? And, and this is what Paul is going to point out. Two significant acts. Uh, an act that Adam has committed and an act that Jesus has committed. What marks out Adam? Well, to put it starkly, uh, sin came into the world through one man. What did he do? He ate the fruit that was, he was forbidden to eat. Uh, yes, as I said, Eve ate first, but Adam bears the responsibility as the re- representative head. And the result is a disaster for mankind. Uh, verse 12, uh, sin came into the world And death through sin. Verse 15, many died through one man's trespass. Verse 16, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one man. What a disaster. And all of this is because of one act of sin. So what of the last Adam? What of Christ? What of Jesus? Well, of course, he entered into the world to bear the weight of the penalty of sin. He came to be the propitiatory sacrifice. We've seen that in chapter 3. He came to die for us while we were still sinners, says Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And this is all substitutionary language. He He comes in our place to die for us, to be in our place. And he comes as the righteous one whose only purpose in living is to do his Father's will, unlike Adam, who decided that doing his father's will was, at that moment of being offered the fruit by Eve, not the most important thing. He made a choice at that moment. It's not the most important thing to do what God said. Yet here's Jesus. He comes obedient to his father. Obedient to the law. Born under law. Living under the law as a man. Keeping it perfectly. And pursuing that messianic promise. That messianic mission to go and suffer and die in the place of sinners. And he did all of this in the face of constant opposition. 
constant opposition, which started in earnest in the desert when he was tempted, and then through all his life was tempted, 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 even on the cross, tempted, tempted to come down, tempted to come down. Constant temptation. And yet he never buckled once. And you, and you see this. You see the wrestling though. It's not as though it's easy for Jesus. Because you see the wrestling of, of this whole issue in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the awful reality grows in his mind as he is entering into Gethsemane. In his human mind as he's trying to make sense of, of, of the, the gravity of all that is coming to him. They would have to suffer this awful shame of death. And he sweats these, these bloody drops of sweat under the stress of the whole thing. And he says to his father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And could there have been, have been a, more, a, a greater moment of temptation for Jesus perhaps than this? That he might just give in. He might just say, I'm just, no, I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> I just give in. Yet he never did. He kept to it. He said, my will, your will be done. And he did it. So Adam failed. Jesus succeeded. This is a glorious thing. Adam lost the battle, but Jesus won it victoriously when he went obediently to the cross. And what's remarkable in these verses is that it was all a gift to the many in Christ. That's how Paul makes the comparison with Adam's trespass. On the one hand, the sin and trespass of Adam. On the other hand, the grace of God to many. So two men, two acts, Two consequences. We've touched on some of this already. The final section we see here, there are two sets of outcomes that flow from the two acts of these two representative men. And he says so in various ways. In verse 18, he says that one act of trespass led to condemnation for all men. So here's Adam representing all men for all history, breaking the command when he broke the command, it means that all were condemned. And I know, not again, this is not talking about transmission of sin through hereditary generation. Uh, this is what he's got in mind here, is imputation of sin. The imputation of Adam's sin, the ascribing Adam's sin to us, the, the reckoning of Adam's sin to us and to our account. That's what I mean by imputation. And so many, in verse 19, are made sinners through that one act. And so then you find in verse 21, not only was sin present in people's lives, but it reigned in the sense that it had control over people. So now is the transmission. Now is the presence of sin. Now is the rule of sin. And the ultimate evidence that, that it really does reign is that everybody dies and does not live for eternity. And that's a great inescapable fact of our condition. 
And, you know, death makes everyone equal, doesn't it? It uh, doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter what social background you come from. It doesn't matter where you come from. In the end, you die, and death is a great leveler. We're all, we enter this world with nothing. We leave this world with nothing. It makes everyone equal. Death comes to us all. Yet, on the other hand, there are consequences for that one act of righteousness. And Paul's purpose, the, the act of righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Paul's purpose here is not to show that the consequences of Jesus' work simply match the consequences of Adam's. His purpose here is to show that the grace of God is far greater than our sin. And yes, we are justified. Yes, we are declared righteous. The work of Adam is undone. The work of sin in our lives is undone. But also, grace now reigns in the life of the believer, leading to eternal life. So that the thing that Adam never achieved, eternal life, can be ours. For Adam, it was to be conditional on perfect obedience. But he never made it. See, for Adam, his... You know, I hope you understand this. That when Adam and Eve were in the garden before they fell, that was not the ultimate goal of God for mankind. See, there was a probation. Don't eat that tree. And if you keep my commands, there's more. There's the tree of life who's there to tell them. There's more. <laughs> there's more. Eschatology, by the way, begins with the tree of life. There's more to, become, to come. So when, when Christ comes, when he comes to undo the work of Adam, he's come to do more than all, all that Adam enjoyed before he fell. Grace reigns. We have life. And he's going to unfold that, I think, in chapter 6, and we'll come to that eventually, how... how how sin no longer reigns in the life of the believer. And we will get to that one day. Now it's interesting in verse 20. Well, I find it interesting. Maybe you don't. But verse 20, uh, he mentions the law again. And remember that Paul has already said that before the law was given, the sins of the people didn't count. But now he says that the law is given to increase trespass. Now, it's a funny thing, the interaction of the law of God with a sinful heart. Uh, I wonder if you've ever thought about this. That, you know, the law comes, I think, as a, something called a magnifying glass. You know what a magnifying glass is like? It makes things bigger, and you can see more clearly, tiny little things. And sometimes the sin of our hearts are like that. They're hidden away, and they're secret, and they're small, and they, you think they're hidden. And then God's law comes along and kind of exposes everything in all its gory clarity. And uh, the law comes and exposes the trespass. It makes it clear. And, uh, but not only that, the law, when the law comes and says to you, you shouldn't do certain things and you should do other things, uh, as sinful human beings, we want to do the things that he, we're curious about, the things he told us not to do. It's like children, isn't it? You, you say, don't press that button. And your, your children want to press the button. <laughs> what would happen if I did? <laughs> Let's try it and see. And, uh, but that's the sinful human heart, isn't it? The human heart's kind of like that. It, God tells you not to do something, and you think, well, let's just try it and see if he means it, if it's real. 
That's the trouble with sin, isn't it? It's enjoyable. <laughs> and, and we get sucked into it. But Paul says here, no matter how great the sin in your life and mine, the grace of Jesus Christ is always greater. It's not just that Jesus Christ's work restores to us what was lost in the Garden of Eden. Jesus' life and death didn't just put, put us back where Adam fell. If that were true, he would still be looking for our complete obedience. Rather, what is true now is that his grace takes us forward into eternal life. Now grace reigns, and no matter what our sins were, are, or shall be, there is more than enough grace to cover it all. It's the most wonderful privilege to be in Christ. Because it's now all about grace, here's here's the application, I think. Because it's all about grace, it should never leave us a bit proud. We're Christians. We've got things all sorted. We should never be proud. And I, you know, I speak to my own constituency, to Calvinists. (laughs) We should never be proud of being Calvinists. And to think that we have got the truth, we have got the truth, but we shouldn't be proud about it. (laughs) And pride in ourselves and our cleverness. You see, a true appreciation of our sin and an appreciation of the sheer grace of Jesus Christ should push down our pride and humble us in the dust. And that's the true posture of the Calvinist. And then comes the promises that are in Christ that no matter the extent of our sin, we may bathe in the vast oceans of God's grace and love. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that he comes as the last Adam to give life where before only death reigned. Thank you that he came to overcome the works of Adam. Thank you that he came in a singular act of salvation to bring life to men and women. We pray that we would see our lives in the light of your word and come to Christ and rest in him. Amen.